Welcome to Halloween Week on the Well Season Librarian Podcast. This is Season 3, Episode 11, and this is also an encore presentation of a previously aired podcast. Today we're welcoming Lloyd Arbach, who is a chocolate and paranormal expert, back to the show in an encore presentation. Um, without further ado, I'm going to go right to it. Um, this is number two in a long week of Halloween week. I hope you are able to listen to all the different podcasts and all the different guests we're having on. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian Podcast, Season 1, Episode 4. Today we have a bit of a treat. We have a guest here today that I've wanted to talk to for a long time, and I was very excited to get to talk to. Lloyd Arbach, whose name you may know from television, paranormal TV shows, and from books, as well as other media appearances, um, is a famous parapsychologist. But did you know he is also a famous chocolatier as well? Let me tell you more about... Lloyd Arbach's background. Chocolate Maven Lloyd Arbach is a lifelong foodist who got heavily involved in learning as much as he could about the dark stuff, chocolate, in the early 2000s. This led him to begin conducting guided chocolate tasting sessions for audiences big and small, and significant further research. While interviewing famed chocolatier Joseph Schmidt in San Francisco, it was suggested he learn to be a chocolatier himself, and so he did, earning a professional chocolatier certificate from Ecole Chocolat in 2009. Wow. The following year saw him begin to produce some of his own unique products, mainly ghost drops, under the banner Haunted by Chocolate, which he sold in small lots for several years, along with special truffles he still makes today, although for only very special audiences. Arbach is also a world-recognized paranormal expert, parapsychologist with a graduate degree in parapsychology and thousands of media appearances. He is the co-author of the new paranormal mystery novel, Near Death, A Rainy Day Investigation, and the author and co-author of nine paranormal books, including Psychic Dreaming, Mind Over Matter, ESP Wars, East and West, The Ghost Detective's Guide to Haunted San Francisco, and the classic ESP Hauntings and Poltergeists. Watch him on Netflix in the recently launched series, Surviving Death. Other media appearances have included The New Thinking Aloud, YouTube, Unexplained, ESPN Sports Center, ABC's The View, Oprah, Larry King Live, Coast to Coast AM, and hundreds more. We've also included information about where to look up more about Lloyd online. So please see our bio for more information. I want to get to the interview as it was uh, wonderful, and I hope you like it as much as I and did conducting it. This is the well-seasoned librarian. Today I'm interviewing chocolatier and parapsychologist Lloyd Arbach. Lloyd, thank you for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. So I have so many things I want to ask you, but first I want to go slightly off script. Are you as disgusted with uh, American chocolate? And I mean the commercial stuff, like the stuff they sell at uh, the Quickie Mart. Do you, are you just disgusted with most of that as I am? Um, you know, honestly, even before the artisan chocolate uh, movement happened in the 90s, I was not very happy with, with most American chocolate. I mean, there were some things I ran into, but I couldn't eat a Hershey bar since I was a kid, uh, regular Hershey bar. The, probably the closest would be the Hershey Special Dark. Yeah. Which, yeah. which I stole from my brothers every time we went out for Halloween. Yeah. Um, they got everything else. Like, that's the only thing I was able to eat. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I loved most of the candy that was out, but nowadays I look at it and it just, no interest. It's pretty disgusting uniformly. Well, you know, there's either a lot of additives in it or it just doesn't have enough chocolate for me. Yeah, I, that, it reminds me, um, I remember I was at a anthropological thing with uh, military stuff and they had the uh, bars they would put in the sea rations that were like half paraffin. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you got to preserve things for the yeah. sewer. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, this is what it reminds me of. This is what we're buying on a daily basis. So how did you become a chocolatier? What got you into it? Well, um, I've always been, I'm a food guy and living here in the Bay Area, I got, 
heavily into wine uh, as, as time went on. So I moved here uh, permanently in 1983, really got heavily into wine. And I think it was probably in the mid 90s that I was at one of my favorite wineries, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore out in Livermore. And they were carrying these bars from um, Scharfenberger. Never heard of them. And the person I knew who was doing the wine tasting said, you have to try this. So I bought a couple of the small bars of Scharfenberger and I was shocked. I mean, I like chocolate flavor, uh, but I was shocked at how good those bars actually were. And, uh, you know, not ultra sweet. They, they had a lot of chocolate flavor to them. So over time, uh, I tried a bunch of their other stuff. And then I started seeing th these artisan or craft chocolates, these, these brands that I'd never heard of start showing up, both in wineries and also in specialty food stores, and uh, started reading about chocolate because, again, I'm a food guy. So I really started reading a couple of books and it got me fascinated to the point where um, when I was having a conversation with one of my publishers uh, for my paranormal books, back around 2005, 2006, it was actually 2005 when the book came out, um, she had me uh, introduce her to a whole bunch of artisan chocolates that I, at a nearby store in Dallas that she knew of that had a whole wall of chocolate and we did a tasting. And she said, you wanna teach people how to do this, maybe even write a book. So I started doing chocolate tastings. Um, I did them both for friends, uh, started doing them for other businesses. I actually did a couple for LexisNexis, who I've worked for, and eventually started interviewing chocolatiers and chocolate makers here in the Bay Area and elsewhere because I was thinking about writing a book. And one of them, Joseph Schmidt, who was a well-known chocolate chocolatier. I mean, he, Schmidt was a, and still is a legend in the chocolate world. He's the one who created the little half egg, really big truffles years and years oh, yeah. ago. And I was at his factory interviewing him and we sat down at the end of my tour. And he said, you know, if you're gonna do any writing about this, you really should learn how to make chocolate and chocolates yourself. So I found a, an online course, a place called Ecole Chocolat, which Schmidt and several other Bay Area chocolate makers actually re recommended. Um, they're up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and they had an online course. And it was recommended to me and I took it. It was a lot of work, I have to say, uh, but it was really worthwhile. So that's, that's how it actually ended up with me doing that. And then I started making chocolate after that. Yeah, I mean, you could easily, I mean, I've played around with chocolate. Nothing is, of course, remotely what you're like, what you're doing, but I've tried. And it's really easy to mess it up. Like you could, if you don't know what you're doing, you could screw it up magnificently. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, because um, I've done a couple of webinars uh, or cookinars as we call them on truffle making. I've taught people how to make just very simple, the traditional French truffles, which really, they're just a soft ganache and they look like an actual truffle. That's where that, word, that name actually came from rather than the filled chocolates. Those are not hard to make. You can still mess it up, but with minor tweaks, um, you don't have to think too hard about what goes into them. And it's everything else though. Tempering chocolate can get screwed up. Uh, coating those, those truffles can get screwed up. Making filled chocolates is easy to screw up. So <laughs> any of that is really easy. Now, I wanna ask you, what is the difference between being a chocolatier and a chocolate maker? Like when you say, for instance, bean to bar, what does that mean? So the, uh, I think that phrase actually was coined by some of the folks in the artisan craft chocolate world here in, in the US. But the idea is that they are importing, somebody who does bean to bar is importing cacao beans from various places around the world. They are typically going to take the cacao bean and crush it, winnow it, get rid of the shell, uh, do a lot of work with it um, in terms of grinding. It's a process called conching, adding the sugar and anything else to it, and then eventually producing an actual bar. So there is chocolate makers produce hard, you know, solid chocolates typically. So for example, Guitard Chocolate is a chocolate maker. They also have bars themselves. They do bean to bar, but they're best known for producing bulk chocolate for top-end restaurants and for um, bakeries, really good bakeries and places. That's what they've been known for. They supply chocolate to Seize Candy, for example. Yeah. 
So they're chocolate makers. Um, a chocolatier will take their chocolate, so I take the bulk chocolate, and I produce confections or other bars. Maybe I blend it with other things, other kinds of chocolate. Um, when I was producing my ghost drops, uh, which are just some little discs with little ghost um, transfers on them, I used Guitard and a couple of other chocolate makers uh, chocolate to come up with a formulation that I felt tasted exactly what I wanted it to taste like. So a chocolatier again takes someone else's chocolate, chocolate maker's chocolate, and does something with it. So uh, what kind of work have you done as a chocolatier? Well, um, besides the guided chocolate tastings, which I continue to do uh, when I can, I mean, I've had to put them aside for the pandemic, of course, although I have done a few virtual ones. Um, I have, for a while I was producing, so from about two, 2010 to probably about a year or two ago, I was producing small lots of what I've called ghost drops. So my business is called Haunted by Chocolate. And I produced these discs which are individually wrapped, so they're hand-dropped. They actually have ghosts on them using a transfer sheet. So I use ghosts, and actually I, I was producing some that were spiced. So my uh, pumpkin spice chocolates actually had little pumpkins on them. So I would use different patterns on them, but typically ghosts, and we would call them ghost drops. And then also I produced filled chocolates, so what people would call bonbons. So they're the coated truffles, essentially, uh, hard shell in different shapes for that. Um, I was selling them for a while. Uh, I didn't have the wherewithal to put everything all in to that, especially with doing the other work that I was doing. So uh, that's kind of fallen by the wayside, although I still produce truffles and occasional salads for certain people uh, that ask for them. So I'd like to hear more about these guided tasting sessions. How do they work? Mm -hmm. So think of a wine tasting, and this is really how I got started in doing anything with chocolate is I'd been through enough wine tastings. Again, I'm a wine guy, so I've been to so many different wineries in the, in the Bay Area and elsewhere, in fact, and thought that given the number of chocolates out there and the nuances of flavor between different chocolate makers or chocolatiers and also where the beans come from. So if you think of uh, with coffee, you've got the beans come from different parts of the world and they all have a different flavor. With wine, depending on the kind of grape it is and where it comes from and where it grows, you know, a Cabernet from Napa will taste different than a Cabernet from Lodi if the grapes are grown in the different, different areas. So same thing with cacao beans. They have their own distinctive flavors. So the, the guided chocolate tastings are samples of chocolate, and I will go through uh, different, depending on the group and what they would actually like, perhaps I'll go through a different spread of countries with the same chocolate maker. So I might do uh, a bar that's 100% made from beans from Madagascar and one from Ecuador, one from Panama and so on. Or I might even do five bars or five tastes of the same bean from different chocolate makers because how they produce it might actually have an impact on their flavor as well. And then there's also the level of cacao going from you know, anywhere, for, if we're doing with dark chocolate, it's anywhere from about 55 or 60% to 90 or even above sometimes, 90% of cacao in that. Uh, and part of that process is also, I, I like to call it edutainment because it is fun. I talk a little bit about the history. I'll talk about the chocolate makers themselves. Um, on occasion, I'll include my own chocolates depending on who I'm doing this for uh, and explain the, the difference between a blend, kind of like a blended wine and one that's 100% from a particular bean because it, hel it helps to kind of try both of those things as well. Mm. And there's a you know, process, I actually have a little tasting sheet where they can take notes and keep track of everything. And uh, it, it's really teaching them how to taste chocolate, which is very similar to how to taste wine, other than having to chew sometimes. Yeah, I, that sounds wonderful. I wanna do that. I'm going to do that. I gotta get my wife in on this. She's gonna like this idea. Um, now, I want to ask you about the name that you mentioned, uh, Haunted by Chocolate. Uh, can you tell me more about that name? Sure. So when I was uh, getting into chocolate, reading various books about it, and looking at people's websites, you know, some of the chocolate makers and chocolatiers' websites, and, and talking to um, the publisher who had actually given me the suggestion to really get into this and to teach people how to, how to taste the chocolate, uh, it occurred to me that, you know, all the good names were taken, you know, passion, passionate about chocolate or passion for chocolate or 
uh, Chocolate Obsession. All those, all those names were taken. And I was thinking about a name for a book, if I was going to write a book on the subject. And given my background uh, as a parapsychologist, paranormal investigator, I, I kind of kiddingly say that I'm haunted by chocolate. And part of that came out of, interestingly enough, it came out of conversations with Michael Recchiuti here in San Francisco and Richard Donnelly down in Santa Cruz, because as I'm talking to them, both of them, and I explain my background uh, in the paranormal, they both separately said they grew up in haunted houses. So Michael Recchiuti had an experience growing up in a haunted house. Then I find out that Richard Donnelly has this experience. And actually I talked to other chocolatiers, chocolate makers who had had their own psych psychic experiences or ghostly encounters. So haunted by chocolate made really good sense for me. I like that. It's a great, it's a great name and it's very unique. It stands out and it, yeah, it sounds good. It makes you kind of want to know more. So I like it. Um, I want to ask you, you know, for a lot of the people that don't know, and I think even for my own, at a, my own education, I think I'd like to know, where does, where does chocolate come from? I mean, where do we get chocolate from? Well, it comes from South, from Central America, actually. Um, if we go back in time, the, I guess the chocolate archeologists have found it as far back as over 3000 BC, BCE, with the Olmecs uh, and possibly further back. Uh, the actual cacao trees come from South and Central America originally. They're grown around the world now in the 2020 belt, so 20 degrees above the equator and 20 degrees below the equator um, is, is kind of the belt that you can grow cacao. Uh, it is uh, kind of a, it, it's not a very, um, it, not a very stable tree, so it really needs to be cared for, although there's a variety of chocolate that's been, of cacao that's been worked on um, through agriculture and cultivated to be a little sturdier. That's, that's called the Forastero bean, which is where those are grown quite heavily in West Africa and the Ivory Coast and places like that, but they're grown all over the place. So how we got chocolate is the Spanish, Cortez conquered the Aztecs. And that's when Europeans first encountered any iteration of cacao in something. Uh, in actuality, Christopher Columbus, when he came back from his first voyage, was uh, bringing back agricultural products from the New World, including what he said were, he thought were almonds, which were actually cacao beans. Oh, wow. So the natives of the Caribbean had actually provided cacao beans. So we know that that was the original uh, time that, uh, the, or the thing that came to Europe, but it was really the Spanish who who had this drink that was fairly bitter and spicy that the Aztecs drank. Um, it's a concoction that had cinnamon and it had chilies and cornmeal and a variety of other things, including cacao, which was a drink for warriors and for the upper class. So it, it was said that Moctezuma himself had somewhere like 50 cups of this liquid every single day because it provided him stamina and apparently was an aphrodisiac wow. as well. Um, records of the Aztecs and actually historical records show that they use cacao beans as money. And Moctezuma was one of the, probably the wealthiest, of course he was the, the king. Uh, he had something like 2 million bags of cacao beans. Oh I'm not sure God. how big the bags were, but uh, he was fairly wealthy. The Spanish added sugar to this concoction and started playing with it. So really it comes from the Spanish in some respects. Nice. So Montezuma was the first chocoholic, so to speak. Well, he, he uh, probably a lot of his people were chocoholics. I mean, it yeah. was the, the drink of, it was the drink of warriors, yeah. you know. So, I mean, can you tell us about the Hershey bar? I mean, cause we all knew and grew up with the Hershey bar, it's everywhere. It's kind of an icon in America. Where did that come from in relation to this? Well, you know, First of all, bar chocolate didn't happen for quite some time, um, but there were chocolate houses for, for drinking cacao. So if you think of it as hot chocolate, it's a form of hot chocolate, not exactly the same as what we think of for hot chocolate. Um, there were as probably as many chocolate houses or cacao houses for drinking chocolate as there were coffee houses for, at one time in Europe. It was a major um, theme and trend that was going on there. Eventually it was produced in bar form. And uh, the problem was that it was very expensive. And Milton Hershey apparently encountered it at a World's Fair in the 1890s. Uh, 
uh, in the US and decided that there had to be a way to get this confection out to the general populace. So as limited in terms of cacao or chocolate there is in a Hershey bar, it really is Milton Hershey who is responsible for the popularity of the chocolate bar in the United States. Um, and can you tell us how, how do they go about now when they get the chocolate, how do they make it? So again, you, so you can, and actually someone can do this. John Scharfenberger years ago uh, put out a video, I think it's still on YouTube, where using a coffee grinder and cacao nibs, which are the bits of roasted cacao bean that you can buy. You can buy them at Whole Foods and places. So using a coffee grinder, a standard coffee grinder, as long as you're willing to let that go, because you'll never be able to use it for anything else again. <laughs> um, he made kind of a rough chocolate by grinding the beans, grinding the nibs, and then adding sugar in and grinding some more. And then the paste that, that happens from that can be tempered if you want to do that or just eaten as is as a form of chocolate. So the beans essentially come in, they can be roasted first. Uh, there is some unroasted, quite a bit of unroasted or raw cacao out there as well, but you get rid of the shell. Um, you break up the beans themselves, you grind the beans, and then they go through a process called conching. It's a device, a special grinder that allows them to kind of really get down to a particular particulate size. Usually the beans are ground for 24 to 72 hours. You can grind much, much longer if you want a much finer particulate. You add sugar to that, you grind it all together, then you might add vanilla into that mix as well. Uh, as soon as you start grinding cocoa nibs, and again, you can do this yourselves, um, it'll actually start turning into a liquid because what happens is the friction melts the cocoa butter that's oh. in there, which is a much lower melting point than anything else. So you get this paste right away and it's the grinding process that allows you to do it. You can do it in a, you know, the, Me the Mexicans have done it with a metate, you know, just a little uh, stone roller on a stone platter kind of thing. A lot of different ways to do that. So take all that mess that you got, what's called um, the, the, the cacao itself with the sugar. If you squeeze the cacao before you even put the sugar in, so in other words, press it, press it out, you can squeeze out cocoa butter oh. and collect that. So then you grind the particles for as far as you need to. You can add back then the cocoa butter, possibly additional cocoa butter, uh, some chocolate makers We'll add additional cocoa butter besides what was originally in those beans to make it smoother and then any flavorings you want at all and then you may have to temper the chocolate at some point which is a process by which you have to raise it to a certain temperature and then lower it and then raise it back up to a, a midpoint so that the cocoa butter crystals actually lock together pretty well wow this sounds really cool i um I would love to kind of see this up close and kind of experience it sometime. Um, now, I want to ask you, we had talked about the artisan chocolate. And I've seen many, I mean, I'm sure you've seen many artisan chocolate uh, companies pop up. I remember I used to pass by the uh, company Cho every day in San Francisco mm -hmm. on the way to the ferry. Um, can you tell us how the artisan chocolate movement kind of took off in the United States? Yeah, apparently, um it was really John Scharfenberger's inception idea for this. <clears throat> of course, he was a big champagne guy, big wine guy, and he wanted to move into something else. And he met someone named Robert Steinberg, who was a chef. Uh, Steinberg had been to some of the really good chocolate houses in France. And in their discussion, they were determining that they should be able to replicate some of these really excellent chocolates here in the States. There really wasn't much uh, in terms of bean to bar or even production of really, really good chocolate here in the States. This is back in around 1990, you know, in the early, very early 90s. So they started, uh, Scharfenberg put money up and with Steinberg's help, they created Scharfenberger chocolate in Berkeley, California. They started selling to various places. I think their big break might have come when they sold to Trader Joe's. Oh yeah. Uh, for quite some time, there were several varieties of Scharfenberger chocolate available, but you know, Trader Joe's at the fancy food show every year, people are always, who are introducing new products are always looking for the Trader Joe's rep because Trader Joe's buys like everything, all the entire production for the year. 
<laughs> and that's how a lot of companies actually get started. And then they stop selling to Trader Joe's because now they have their name established. Yeah. Uh, which is why we go to Trader Joe's and things disappear every so yeah. often. You got to grab uh, so, Yeah, so that that probably, I mean, I'm guessing, I don't know for, fa for a fact that that was how that happened, but uh, just the pattern of things with Trader Joe's makes perfect sense. That, then they also sold to wineries. I mean, Sharpenberger had an in with, all, with a lot of wineries. So people like myself were encountering their chocolate in the wineries. And it wasn't just people who consumed. It was people who wanted to, who were so impressed by this, they wanted to start their own companies or start their own production. So I, I really see, um, while there have been many chocolatiers out there for years, the chocolate makers, the artisan chocolate makers, they, can, they owe their debt to Scharfenberger itself um, for that. Now, Scharfenberger is currently owned by Hershey, uh, was bought by Hershey a number of years ago. Uh, Robert Steinberg actually had a degenerative blood disorder, which was terminal. And the oh. agreement that uh, he was going to basically stay with the company as long as he could. And when they sold to Hershey, part of the agreement apparently was as long as he was alive, they would keep the Berkeley factory going. In the meantime, Steinberg helped them set up their main plant in Illinois and taught all the chocolate makers there everything he needed, they needed to know to continue to make Scharfenberger chocolate exactly the same way they were making it in Berkeley. So um, I, I, at one point I was doing a tasting and I had a bar from the Berkeley plant and one from Illinois of the same type of chocolate and you could not tell the difference because oh. they were exactly the same. Same recipe, same beans, the whole bit, same ingredients. Um, Hershey actually has an artisan chocolate arm that they decided to start. They, they bought uh, Dagoba chocolate up in Oregon, which is an organic chocolate company. Oh, they yeah, bought, stuff. excuse me? I love their stuff. Yeah, Dagoba is great. And they, you know, Hershey has been hands off. I mean, for Dagoba, they, they're their own thing. They bought Joseph Schmidt's company uh, and apparently at them, at his, either the sales were different or he just wanted to retire. So he's been a consultant to Hershey and to other companies from what I understand. Uh, and they, and again, they bought Scharfenberger. So, you know, Scharfenberger chocolate is great, even though it is owned by Hershey. Now we touched on this in the beginning, but what, what would you say the difference is between commercial chocolate, i.e. the stuff we see everywhere in the stores, et cetera, and the artisan produce chocolate. What's the difference between it fundamentally? Well, well, main, there's a couple of differences. Um, one is the content of the cacao. And of course, some of the commercial, the really big producers are producing chocolate with high cacao content. A typical Hershey bar, which is the milk chocolate bars that Hershey makes, have very, very, very low content of cacao. It's mostly milk and sugar. Yeah. So it's basically chocolate flavored milk and sugar. There is cacao in there, but it's mostly that. Uh, and there are milk chocolates that are, you know, similar to that, that are as low, and there are some that are a little bit higher, for example. Uh, but that's one difference, is how much cacao is in there. The other difference is actually where the beans come from. So West Africa produces the majority, you know, the largest amount of cacao beans. And there are three main varieties of cacao beans. There's Forastero, which are very sturdy trees, but they're not exactly flavor beans. In other words, they don't, they're not as flavorful. They're heavily disease resistant. Um, they don't have as much flavor or as much unique characteristics as Criollo, which are the original beans that exist. There's actually a fourth version too, Nacional. Uh, and then there's uh, Trinitaria, which is a hybrid of Forastero and Criollo, which has quite a bit of flavor, but again, not as hardy a tree as the Forastero is. So there's much more Forastero grown in Africa and other countries that they're buying from than there are the other beans. And I think that in general, while some countries in Africa have produced exceptional chocolate because they've taken care with the beans, uh, Ghana, for example, produces great chocolate. And Cho, that you mentioned earlier, uh, has a one bar from that uses beans from Ghana. Uh, generally, the beans are not exactly the highest quality. So, you know, they're trying to keep their price low, so they're not buying the most expensive beans as well. They might also add other additives in there. I mean, I've seen chocolate bars <clears throat> that don't have, uh, some, some bars have vanilla and some have vanillin. 
And I always tell people that if you look at the ingredients on any bar, if it says vanillin, you might not want to buy it just simply because that's an artificial vanilla made as a byproduct of another process that has nothing to do with food. So um, not all chocolate needs vanilla, but I would make sure it's vanilla and not vanillin. Yeah. Um, what, so we, we see different types of chocolate in the stores. You know, of course, the ubiquitous milk, dark milk, semi-sweet, bittersweet, and of course, uh, white chocolate, which I think is controversial. What is right. your opinion on the different categories? Do you have a favorite among them? Well, I'm, I'm a preference for dark chocolate in general, but I do like dark milk too. Uh, dark milk is a relatively new category for people. Uh, milk chocolate means that there's milk in it. I mean, that's really the difference between milk and dark is there's milk in milk chocolate, there's no milk in dark chocolate. Right. So the idea of dark, of dark milk is to increase the cacao content and decrease the sugar and the milk content in that bar. Um, so I've had bars that are as high as 65% cacao with regular milk, the milk product that you typically use. And those have a much more flavorful uh, profile and they also have kind of a caramel note because the chocolate and the milk kind of blend together to make a caramel kind of flavor. Uh, one of my favorite chocolates right now, um, chocolate companies is Manoa Chocolate out of Hawaii. And they make a goat milk, dark milk chocolate, uh, which is 69% cacao. That's one of my absolute favorite chocolates. It just tastes great. Uh, I love their other chocolate too. And then when we get to the dark side, <clears throat> when you talk about sweet or semi-sweet, you're really talking about dark chocolate that's around 55% or a little bit less. Actually, it's 35 to 55% is semi-sweet because there's more sugar. 55, when you get to 55 to usually about 65%, you're talking about semi, uh, a bit, actually above, let's say it's above 55% is bittersweet when we're talking about that. Uh, a lot of folks see the word bittersweet on it. It really refers to the cacao content. It doesn't refer to it bitterness. And I've had cho dark chocolate that is 99% cacao that has no bitterness whatsoever. It's not sweet at all because there's no sugar, but it is not bitter at all. Uh, I've also had 55% semi-sweet bars that are very bitter because the beans were bitter in there. And then white chocolate shouldn't really be called chocolate at all. I mean, legally, this is the thing. This is one of those legal food is labeling issues that, that nobody's really pushed the lip, pushed out there. But legally within the chocolate world, um, because white chocolate doesn't have any cocoa solids in it, it has only cocoa butter and milk and sugar and vanilla typically. So if it's got those things, it shouldn't be called white chocolate. It should be really a white confection yeah. at that point. And then there are of course the fake ones which don't even use cocoa butter, which is a, a re like white chocolate flavored things. Yeah, you see that more often nowadays and it's kind of like, what? Uh, it is or it's not. It's like chocolate flavored. Doesn't sound very good. <laughs> You want yeah. chocolate, not chocolate flavored, which I've seen chocolate. Yeah, and in fact, I think that our, we're seeing cereals and now are not allowed to say chocolate flavored unless they're using chocolate. So I think they're doing chocolatey. Yeah, yeah. You'd say chocolatey. All the variable uh, words from my childhood, all the, the fake foods of my childhood, Astro, everything was uh, new and conceivable and food-like, but not actual food. Right, right. Food, food, stuff, food stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've actually used white chocolate in making confections, you know, making bonbons and things like that. Um, it can, you know, be for a sweet, it's, they're sweet. I mean, that's the thing is that you can't get something that's not that sweet unless you just use cocoa butter itself. Yeah. Um, so how do you decide what good chocolate is? And can you give us any tasting tips or what about? Yeah. Um, well, first, you know, I get asked what the best chocolate is all the time. I'm sure every, everyone else dealing with chocolate gets asked that question again. Yeah. Uh, again and again. And my answer is, I can tell you what my favorite chocolate is today. <laughs> um, there's no such thing as best chocolate. I mean, best chocolate for you, because your taste buds are different than mine. And one of the things I've learned very, very, very 
clearly in the chocolate tastings that I've done, when people go through a, a series of chocolates, I will ask them of these five, what's your favorite? And I get different answers for people for different reasons. You know, some people do like sweeter chocolate. I, I know people who just don't like dark chocolate at all and will swear, will never try dark chocolate, although we've kind of slipped it to them once in a while. Um, and I found some chocolates that actually, some dark chocolates that work for people who don't like dark chocolate. Uh, it's just a matter of figuring out that out. So the thing to do is when you, and the process of tasting a chocolate is really to taste it, which means there's a couple of things. So if I have a bar of chocolate in front of me, the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm going to see that it snaps. A piece of chocolate should snap, it should make a sound. Now that can alter if you're in 95 degree weather outside, <laughs> that chocolate's not gonna snap because it's already starting to melt. That doesn't mean it's bad. Um, I'm gonna look at it first to make sure it doesn't have uh, streaks in it, just to, just to understand it. So, And people often will throw away chocolate that's relatively new, um, that has white on it on the surface, that's called a bloom. And that can actually happen because of moisture in the air um, that pulls the sugar out. There's a sugar bloom that happens. That will affect the texture a little bit, but it doesn't, it's not bad. Um, the only thing I can say about chocolate going bad is if you have milk chocolate and it smells bad or tastes bad, throw it away because the milk goes bad. The chocolate doesn't go bad so much, the milk does. Um, so you look at it, you snap it, you pop a small piece in your mouth, let it sit on your tongue for a little bit, you might chew it a little bit just to, to get the pieces smaller, let it melt on your mouth, kind of swirl it around your whole mouth because you want it to touch all parts of your tongue. And that's going to tell you whether or not for your tongue, for you, is it bitter? Is it sweet? Is it, what's the flavor like? What are the additional flavors? Because there can be a, fla a forward flavor besides chocolate. For example, Madagascar beans uh, or Madagascar chocolate has this tangy, raisiny flavor to it. Mm. And that's because of where it's grown in the soil. Huh. So you always get, you know, I usually ask people, so what kind of fruit does this taste like? And, and then I, and I, they'll have like dried cherries and all these other things. And I say, okay, if I say, say a word, let me know if this actually sits well with you. And I'll say raisinets and everybody goes, oh yeah, that's right. That's kind of what it, but so it's really where the bean comes from. Uh, in this whole process, I will also have smelled the chocolate too, to make sure it smells like chocolate. Uh, unless of course it's got spices in it, in which case it's going to smell like the spice in the chocolate for yeah. that as well. But you see, so, uh, I've seen a lot more of the uh, spiced chocolates recently, and I really yeah. love. Them. So you know, you really just have to see what try a, a bunch of different things. And what I usually tell my friends and tell everybody is, try chocolates until you find one you really like, or find several, and you're going to find several you really like. Um, be prepared to spend a little money. These are not one dollar chocolate bars. These are, you know, they're going to be four dollars to. $10 a bar. I mean, I've spent on a regular, you know, three ounce or even a two and a half ounce chocolate bar, I spent $12. Yeah. Because I wanted to try that bar. And uh, it's, it's, again, it's like wine. There's um, heavier production. Uh, I, I recommend a couple of companies to, to start with that people can find everywhere. Uh, like if you can find the bars that Guitard makes, definitely buy the Guitard bars uh, because they, they're one of the best companies in the country consistently that make, I think because they produce so much, they import so much in terms of beans, their price, their bars are, are lower cost for the average consumer. Uh, Divine makes some really great chocolate too. Their 70% bar is wonderful. Uh, again, lower price because they're such a large company that was started by, uh, with the help of the woman who owned the body shop. Um, she actually started it with uh, Farmers Cooperative in Ghana. Oh, wow. That it, they're part owners of the company, which oh, is wow. great. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's this thing called fair trade. And that's, and I know a lot of people look for fair trade labels, but fair trade costs quite a bit of money. And I've known companies that have said, uh, I know one chocolate maker who said to me, we're not going fair trade because I'd rather give the money to the farmers. And he actually pays the farmers more money than typical fair trade companies would for that reason. Because he had, he saved the money on one end and he gave it to them instead. Oh, I like, thanks for clearing that up because I, 
think a lot of us see that we don't really always know what it means when we see that. Yeah, I, I mean, technically they're paying a certain, they're paying a little bit more than the distributors normally would pay, uh, but it's not enough. Uh, in some countries it's enough to make a difference, but in, in general, when we think about making a living, it's really not enough. Yeah. Uh, one of the great things about a lot of these artisan chocolate makers is they make direct deals with the farmers and they take care of the farmers. Uh, in fact, um, Art Pollard from Amano Chocolate, which is out of Utah, he actually goes and he's made deals directly with the farmers, guaranteeing them a certain level of income for 10 years because he wants to lock up. He likes the beans. He wants to lock them up for 10 years. He's paying them like five times or more what they would get from fair trade. Um, so I want to slightly change the topic, although not too much. Um, I want to ask you about your career as a paranormal expert. So how did you get into the paranormal field? So um, I've always been interested in parapsychology, which is what, you know, really there is no paranormal field. There's a field that studies the paranormal. And then there are the people who watch TV and go out and become ghost hunters. That That's what we see a lot of. <laughs> yeah, and they think they're in a they think they're in a paranormal field, but they're not really doing any study. They're doing experiential stuff. Um, with rare, there are exceptions, of course. So parapsychology is the study of psychic phenomena, which includes things like ghosts and hauntings and and poltergeist phenomena, things you see on these TV shows as well. And I got really interested in the subject uh, because of comic books and television as a kid. Uh, in fact, I I have to say I was heavily influenced by certain TV shows. That got me interested and the one that really got me or pushed me towards this field was dark shadows oh yeah the old soap opera um that's probably where i heard the word parapsychology first it sent me to the library looking for books and i found the books on parapsychology there were some mass market ones that i had read by ghost hunters like hans holzer but when i went to the library i was a science geek as a kid and i found these science books on parapsychology and that just locked me up um, and that, coupled with some really synchronistic things that happened in high school, um, one of my neighbors knew, knew a parapsychologist because she was a yoga teacher and he was her client. Uh, a couple of my teachers were interested. We started a parapsychology club in my high school in Elmsford, New York. Uh, I mean, I had one thing right after another kind of saying, yeah, this is the right thing for you to do. And when I finished college, they were just starting a graduate program at JFK University out here on the West Coast. Uh, in parapsychology. So I got a, was able to get a master's and move into the work into the field. I'm an alumni of JFK. I didn't know they have it. That's pretty neat. Parapsychology was around from 77 to around 87. Um, I was actually a faculty, I still technically, I guess I'm a faculty member of National University now since JFK doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. As of January. Yeah. Um, but I don't teach parapsychology, unfortunately. They got rid of that. I think the last time I taught a parapsychology course was probably around 1999. So what kind of training uh, did you receive? So, you know, uh, and this is, this is kind of important to the idea that there is actually a field. Um, yeah. Research methods on ESP and psychokinesis, field research methods, so how to do an actual field investigation from a scientific perspective, uh, counseling issues when you're dealing with people and their experiences. Uh, then we had courses. So we had courses where we were actually doing laboratory work, doing investigation work. Uh, we were learning the history of the field quite a bit, which because the history goes back to the 1800s, uh, contrary to what you hear on TV quite a bit from the ghost hunters. And it's all interrelated. I mean, you can't really, the ghost investigations, the, the hauntings, the poltergeist stuff, all relates to ESP and mind over matter, what we call PK. It all is interrelated in many respects. Um, we had courses in physics, in philosophy of consciousness, in um, a number of areas of other fields of science that relate directly into our field, into parapsychology. And my undergraduate from Northwestern was Anthropocultural anthropology, and I focused on those courses and with those professors that had were teaching, had experience in, and were teaching courses in magic and witchcraft and sorcery beliefs around the world, cross culturally, 
uh, because in those experiences and beliefs in other cultures, we find psychic experiences. Uh, and I heard a lot of great stories from those professors over the years. So it, it was a, a, a broad base, think of it as general science for those that hadn't had experience in psychology and other fields, but with a focus on what the field of parapsychology had done and was planning on doing going forward. Uh, and that's kind of what I teach currently online through the Ryan Education Center, one of the organizations that I work with. Yeah, do you think popular culture and media has changed this so much? Because I'm, I'm old enough to remember when you heard paranormal or parapsychology, it was largely academic. Yeah. You know, and now it seems like, and I'm not trying to, I don't want to name names. I'm not going to name any specific shows, but we watch a lot of TV and I see a lot of shows where it's, I swear to God, I feel like it's every one of them is just a guy, a bunch of guys running around a dark house, lights are always out and they're always going, oh, oh my God. And, and it's, it's, they're hysterical. And it's, and I, how, what do you think of all this stuff that you see now on TV? Because it's like the travel channel or one of the channels or two, it's like 24 hours of these people running around dark houses. How does that, yeah. how do you feel? Well, you know, first I got to say that I grew up in the television industry. My dad worked for NBC when I was born and he worked for NBC until 1980 and then started his own company uh, during production. My, uh, his older brother, Larry Auerbach, was the director of Love of Life and was a director for All My Children and One Life to Live. Uh, my uncle, my mother's brother was a, a newscaster in New York for a radio station. So I grew up around the media, the whole thing. So I was behind the scenes at 30. I, I like to say I grew up at 30 Rock. Oh, yeah. Nice. Wow. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time there. I actually ended up being on TV a number of times. My dad was a sports producer. And some of the pregame shows that he shot with Joe Garagiola uh, oh, wow. always started with, a, with Joe having a catch with a kid in a fake, fake yard. And that was me a lot of times. Oh, my God. So, stories this must have. Yeah. So and I started doing TV as an as a guest or interview subject and I think my first one was probably 1983 although I'd been on the radio even as a teenager uh, for parapsychology and so when uh, as as the 80s happened I uh, did a huge amount of television into the 90s but think there was a, a couple things that happened from television uh, because of pop culture and one of which was the advent of consumer nightshot cameras um, I had producers that I was turning down or, or just simply pushing back when they wanted to turn all the lights out because this yeah. is for television yeah. and they needed to make it spooky. A lot of the, thing, the, the pieces I did, they had to do them at night because even though the people had their experiences in the daytime because this is for television, it's spooky. We're trying to make it spooky. So when the show started up, um, they were really directed at two things, uh, the people themselves and their reactions and their interplay. So it's, Ghost Hunters, for example, was not about the paranormal when it first started. I mean, the whole idea of Ghost Hunters was a bunch of guys, including a couple of guys who worked for Roto-Rooter, who were going out as amateur ghost hunters and how they interacted with each other and interacted with supposed phenomena. You know, that's what the show was about. Secondarily, it was about the phenomena. So these shows are not, uh, they're not conceived by people who know what they're doing. Uh, you know, you can, you can have 30 years experience doing a bad investigation technique and not learn anything from it. Yeah. And so when I see some of these guys saying, I've been doing this for decades, it's like, yeah, but you've been doing it wrong for decades. Yeah. And, I, and honestly, I don't think that if they've been doing it for decades, they were doing it in the dark before night shot camera or until they got their hands on one because you really can't do that. Most of them had never heard of BVP until the TV show started. Yeah, so, I, I heard of them years, but I don't think it was used in the pop, popular parlance, but now it's dropped all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, EVP, electronic voice phenomena, was done experimentally as far back as, you know, the 40s, and even, even before, technically. And it's just something that they, they can show and do on TV. I mean, the producers are the ones who are actually running the show. Um, the producers tell them it's not scripted because it's reality TV is unscripted. That's how they can get away with not paying writers. But the director, producer will tell them often what to do. And I've been on some shows, I've even been in a couple of those shows, uh, the paranormal TV investigation TV shows. And 
And even on news shows, they'll tell me, you know, if I'm doing a news piece at a place, they'll say, hey, can you go walk back in slower this time? Can you say what you just said, but say it shorter? Can you say it longer? Can you say it this way? And I've actually said no a lot of times. I got cut out of an Unsolved Mysteries segment back in the 80s because I refused to go the direction the director wanted to do with the episode, something I didn't know until I got there. He wanted to make it demonic, even though the people who had the experience didn't feel it was evil or bad or demonic. That's what he wanted to do. And I refused to say anything other than what my actual opinion was. So they cut me out. Yeah, I mean, because I, I feel like they are, there's, off, there's a lot of jargon thrown around and there, there seems to be a kind of nod towards parapsychology, but yet they want, I feel like oftentimes the language is kind of sloppy and they'll just say things and oftentimes they're not even explaining it. So like terminology, right. like shadow people gets thrown around. Right. Nobody's saying what this means. Right. And they'll use different terms for what they're experiencing, but it's, it's confusing because I feel, isn't there like different types of entities that you experience in a paranormal investigation? So it's not all just one paintbrush with everything, right? No, it's not one paintbrush. We have different phenomena that we're dealing with. Um, I think that when we talk about different entities, we're really talking about apparitions or ghosts of people who passed away. And <clears throat> that's different from what you hear on TV. They talk about residual hauntings. Yeah. And that's, that's a real thing. I'm mean, going to use the term, just to use the term haunting or place memory, that it seems like there's a recording of, of people from the past. But those people could still be alive because the recording was actually made when they were alive. Not when they, you know, they don't have to be dead. Just like a movie is made when people are alive, even though 50 years later and all those people are dead, you can still watch the movie. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about apparitions, what they love to call intelligent hauntings, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't think that every human being is intelligent. So <laughs> I like, we, tend to, we tend to use conscious <laughs> entities. And you know, I left, I've been saying for a long time, ghosts are people too. I'm not the first one to say it. Uh, they may be dead people, but they still are people. And when we talk about different experiences of the entities or experiences of those apparitions, that could be visual. That could be fuzzy because your visual that you're getting is not clear. It could be shadowy because again, the picture's out, so out of focus, it looks like a shadow. That's about you, that's not about them. So we have to consider the perception of the activity as, as possibly the same thing, even though it comes through in different ways, in many different ways. So that's, that's a way that we look at it. And really there's very little in the way of parapsychology in any of the shows, in fact, Ghost Hunters made a point of not involving parapsychologists at all. And as, as much as Steve Gonzalez, who was one of the original guys and came back to the show years later, he actually knows something about parapsychology. Yeah. I've had, it's been years, but I had conversations with him, never got a chance to talk about it, <laughs> not once. And one of the main guys on Ghost Hunters at a conference I was at, I was on a panel with, with them and the guys from Paranormal State, and he, he got up and made a comment that I had to interrupt, stating that there was no good literature at all uh, before the 1990s on the subject. So ignoring over 100 years of history. And that shows a level of, of interest that they had in actually what had gone before and actually what has gone on in general. Um, I know that you've we, I have a couple of your books. Uh, I mean, I have several of your books, but one of them I have is about the haunted landmarks in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. And so I'd like to hear, do you have any um, favorite landmarks that you like to talk about um, that, that you've um, visited? Well, in San Francisco proper, I think that one of the best ones is actually the Queen Anne Hotel. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been there a few times um, in the book. The book is The Ghost Detection's Guide to Haunted San Francisco. And I co-authored that with my friend, Annette Martin, who was my investigations partner for many years until she passed away. Actually, she passed away a few months after the book came out in 2011. Um, but Annette was an amazing psychic and medium and verifiably had worked with police on many different cases. You know, the police, one of the few psychics, the police actually said, yeah, we worked, worked with her and she did great. We kept calling her back. Um, and that, ho that hotel, which used to be a girls' school in the 1800s. Uh, Mary Lake, 
who was one of the main folks involved in the school early on, apparently is still there. And then there's a little, there's a little girl who actually was, according to Annette, was following us around as we went through the hotel, uh, who other people have seen dancing in the lobby. She apparently is a little girl, one of the students who died of, of uh, consumption of tuber tuberculosis uh, early on in the, the late 1800s. So um, people have had experiences there. They, uh, there's one room, which was Mary Lake's favorite, favorite room, apparently on the fourth floor, which people have had mixed, you know, sometimes they have an experience and sometimes they don't because they tend to forget that ghosts, again, ghosts are people too, so they don't have to be there for you. That's, a, that's something I'm afraid the TV shows always forget. So, you know, like, but this place is not haunted, there's no activity. And the next day, the people come back in and of course the, the activity is all over the place. The ghost didn't just, just didn't want to show up and dance for you. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it, it, makes, it makes it sound like you just go to these places and suddenly it's, up, it's on demand, you know? Yeah, yeah, and it's, in fact, there are show, some of the shows, some of the ghost hunters will yell and scream and, you know, personally, if I was that ghost, uh, I would be whacking those people upside the head <laughs> because they're the ones acting like demons. I have a friend who's, um, he, he, he works in paranormal research and he said that he, he is the opinion that, that they may make it worse if there's any kind of a issue going on with um, angry spirits or anything like that. They could make things worse by, they're creating like a antagonistic atmosphere. Right, and they're, they're kind of leaving that. Um, they may not make it worse as far as if there is actually an entity there, a ghost there. Um, that ghost is probably going to relate the same way to the family that lives there or the people that work there that they did before. Although they might be pissed off that you called in those ghost hunters. But the atmosphere itself, you know, the, the, I guess you could say the walls feel bad now because you brought this angry energy into the house. So, you know, there is that element. Um, so, the, I mean, I, I do recommend the Queen Anne Hotel. The another one is, the, you know, not exactly in San Francisco, but it's in the book, is the Moss Beach Distillery Restaurant just south of San Francisco, which um, is a bit controversial because, and, and actually I just saw a recent article which was not well researched, uh, claiming that it wasn't haunted at all, based on a couple of minor uh, details without doing, and literally talking to anyone at the restaurant or any real um, investigative reporting of the situation. So uh, Ghost Hunters also did a hatchet job on the place, I think partly because of, I, I'd been working there for so long. I think that's a part of the reason they did that. Um, but you know, it's, it's always funny to see that, in this case, this reporter made a comment about having uh, that the Fresno Bee had interviewed um, a friend of mine named Darren Coleman, who had put special effects, worked on special effects for the restaurant. But nowhere does it mention that the, the effects were put in, excuse me a second, sorry about that, that the effects were put in in 1997 um, and there had been decades of reports of the apparition of the ghost going back to the 1930s, in fact. So um, the reason they were even put in was because the owner came to me, since I had such a relationship with them, having done investigations and worked there since 1991, and they had just taken the part place apart anchored it to the hill because of earthquake safety, rebuilt it ex almost exactly as it was to historic accuracy with a couple of minor um, ADA changes that they had to actually make. And he wanted to actually increase it. He said, can you ask the ghost to do more stuff? Is what he said to me. And I said, I could ask her, but you know, it's not like you can pay her. <laughs> So why don't you, and I suggested, why don't we do what the Queen Mary has done? Because since the early 1990s, the Queen Mary has had special effects in the place, especially for their ghost tours, where it's their recreations of what people had reported. So we set up these recreations. Darren was the person I brought in, um, and we set up some recreations, and they were recreations that were a little off. So for example, I had witnessed, as had many other people, the two Tiffany lamps at the end of the bars, either end of the bar that had been moving on their own. There were four in the center. So we set up an effect with the four in the center because those had never been reported to have moved. We didn't fix the other two. So if somebody says to oh, the bar, I get what you're saying. So, yeah, somebody says to me, you know, I've gotten emails from people saying, I saw, you know, I witnessed the, the lamps moving and I said, which ones? And they said, the ones in the center. I said, no, that's not, that's not actually her. <laughs> 
Um, and then we had a press conference in 1998 and another one in 1999 to unveil the special effects, which made the news. So again, this reporter never bothered to check the actual news reports, other than finding that the earliest reports you could find in a newspaper of the haunting was 1980, even though um, I and my folks talked to old timers who remembered experiences from back as far as the 1930s. And I talked to a really good witness uh, from the USS Hornet aircraft carrier case, which is actually a, another haunted place in the Bay Area, who was a former Navy SEAL who had an experience, but wouldn't call it a ghost experience. It was just really unusual. And then he told me about his experience as in the 50s as the kids seeing the ghost of the distillery. So when you have these kind of skeptical articles coming out, um, it's not always easy. And I, I have in the past, the last time one came out, I sent a note to the reporter didn't, or, and to the editor didn't hear a word. And I'm even debating to do this again because I don't think it's, it's going to be a wasted effort. I know that. Um, but the distillery has been a really good place for a long time. And in fact, um, there's quite a bit of television on the place as well. Do you have um, one of your, um, do you have any memorable, what is, let me rephrase this question, I'm sorry. What would be your most memorable uh, place that you visited, would you say? Um, well, I mean, the, the memorable place is hard to say. Or memorable haunting, maybe, maybe that's the best way to say it. Yeah, I mean, I've had a couple of really, truly incredible cases or really memorable cases over the years. Um, I have one that was kind of a, a major turning point for me. I was kind of agnostic about the idea of, I wasn't even sure ghosts were actually conscious or not, even though there was a lot of literature and evidence for this. Um, I hadn't had a case at that point <clears throat> that really was overwhelmingly in favor for myself. Although again, I lean towards that just simply because of the hundred plus years of reports and investigations that my colleagues had done and my predecessors. And we had a case in Livermore um, with a family that was not afraid and individually they were having this experience seeing this woman, apparently the woman who had previously owned the house, who died in the hospital, didn't die in the house. The house was actually empty for a year and a half um, while it went through probate and her only living relative was able to, who was in assisted living was able to arrange for the sale, an estate sale to this family. From the time they moved in, they were separately all seeing this woman and they were not saying anything to each other because they didn't want to freak everybody out. In the meantime, their son, who was the one who actually raised the question or brought the subject up right before his mother called me uh, at JFK, this is back when we had our parapsychology program, uh, he apparently had been talking to her almost every day, he said. In fact, he claimed she was helping him with his homework and his grades had gotten better. <laughs> oh my God. So, um, the mother was really concerned, you know, they, the kids said something, they all fessed up to having the experiences with the, the parents and uh, the mother's mother. So the kid's grandmother had also seen the ghost when she came to visit. So they were interested in finding out what's the deal, you know, who is she, what's going on. And I was down there with a couple of other uh, investigators and we had a, a long conversation with, um, after being taken on a tour of the house, by the boy and the ghost. He's, he's introducing the ghost to us. We can't see her, but she's standing next to him, he said. And he's telling us these stories as we're walking through the house about what went on, because she, she lived her entire life in this house in Livermore. Um, sat down, uh, I got information about how to contact this only living relative, because the mother had not been able to contact him. It was all done through an attorney. I got the contact information, which you know he could have found, it's possible. Uh, and then we asked questions. We interviewed the ghost. She was sitting in a chair, apparently, next to the boy. Oh, wow. He was acting like a media, he was like a translator. And it was just a really surreal experience that provided so much information that I was able to verify after talking to the only living relative. There were family stories that were not written down anywhere that this guy actually, I would start telling a story, he would finish it. Oh, so those... Wow. That bit of information was incredible. And then on top of everything else, um, I said, so 
yet she have any questions for us? And apparently, this is around uh, not too long after Ghostbusters came out. And I think the boy, I think Chris was, he himself was worried about us kind of blasting her out of existence. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> so the first question was, do you have blasters like in Ghostbusters? And I think it really came from him. And we kind of kidded about that. And then there was a question for each of us that related directly to a, an irrelevant con conversation, not even relevant whatsoever to the case that we had had on the 40 minute drive from Orinda down to Livermore in my car. Oh my God. And I, you know, so the, the options here are, they bugged my car, but there was no motivation. They didn't want publicity. The kid was psychic and he was reading our minds, which is always a possibility, but yeah. didn't seem like it or something else. And I said, well, how does Lois know to ask us these questions? And he looked very sheepish and said, well, she was afraid you guys might blast her. So she got to, a, to the university and got in your car and rode down with you and listened in on your conversation. So you put all this stuff together and there's really not a good conclusion you can come to other than Lois was real. Um, I've written this up. This is a chapter in a book called Surviving Death by Leslie Keen, K-E-A-N. Um, which is about the evidence for life after death. Um, uh, there's a, actually a, a Netflix series based on the book, although that, this case doesn't make the book, not make the series, it's in the book. So that was an 85 case that really is more than memorable for me. Well, thank you very much for coming here and, and talking to me about, all, about chocolate and the paranormal. I really have had a wonderful conversation with you. I really want to thank you for, for, for being here. Oh, you're welcome. It's two, my two favorite topics. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed getting into re-listen to that conversation with Lloyd Arbach. He was a wonderful guest and so knowledgeable about chocolate and the paranormal. You can go to his website and social media listings on our informational listings for this episode. Tune in for the rest of this Halloween week. We're going to be having several other guests. Tomorrow, we're going to be having an encore presentation of our conversation with Lizanna Wallace, who wrote The Natural Witch's Cookbook. On Friday, we'll have J.D. Walker, a new guest who has written The Witch's Guide to Wild Crafting from Llewellyn Publications. She'll be on again on Friday. Please come back for the rest of the week and listen to our other guests. I had a really good time getting to talk to them and revisiting some of these older podcasts as well. Have a happy week this week, celebrating Halloween, and until then, happy cooking.